Did we happen to mention that we're on Patreon? We have lots of bonus content coming your way. Of course, we have our cemetery tour with the Good Time Girls, where you can listen to spooky tales of Bayview Cemetery and learn where some of our favorite Bad Town characters were buried. And you can listen to Maria fumble through a game of Cornwall or Commercial, one of our many Bellingham renditions of This or That. Coming up next, we have a series of short interviews and games with local businesses. In the lineup, we have Emma, the bar manager from Temple Bar, Dennis, the beverage director of Swim Club, Alexark Mastema from Maniac Coffee Roasting, and more. Should we have a quick listen to some of our highlights with our interview from Dennis? Yes. So in this episode, we played another Bellingham rendition of This or That. Actual name of a beer or something brewed up by Maria and Annika. Let's have a listen. Hookstash. Local or made up by Maria and Annika? Made up by Maria and Annika. No, that is Aslan Brewing. Oh, apparently I need to go visit them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the next one is No Deadlines. I'm going to say local. Perfect. You are correct. Do you want to guess a brewery? No Deadlines. Um, I don't I don't know what the brewery is, but I'm okay. going to I'm going to guess that it's structures. Those are our friends over at Twin Sisters. Uh, but Twin you Sisters. still get the the point. And and to give you some grace <laughs> I had to look up all of these. There's so. a lot of breweries in town. I know. And, and this is why we wanted to play this game because their names, there's kind of a like mystical, like, I don't know if there's a, there's a theme going on, but I don't know what that theme is. But it makes it really confusing. <laughs> sure. That was great. And we have more games like that coming too. We also got some really great drink recommendations and some ideas on how to support Swim Club through COVID. Let's have a listen. So our kits are great. Um, we are basically just trying to recreate the swim club experience that you can have in your own house. Um, so a number of our cocktails are extremely popular. Um, our Snowball Old Fashioned has been our number one seller every year, um, and that continues again this year. So the kit, actually, we still make the snowballs for you to take home and enjoy at home, so you do get that, that full experience. Um, and just some of our cool uh, custom glassware, like the Santa Rex mugs and our Santa heads, are some of those more unique items that um, you can't really find anywhere else. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd want our listeners to know about Swim Club right now? Uh, what are you all up to, and what can our listeners do to support you? Uh, I think in general, just continuing to come out and support during our Miracle Pop-Up and, and our to-goes. Um, I know this year's been really stressful for a lot of restaurants, and you know every little bit helps. So just go out and support your your local restaurants and bars, and, and even if what they have to offer is a little bit different than you're, they're used to, yeah. you know, that's kind of where we're all playing within the rules given to us right now. So Yeah, definitely. So. That was a great interview. And we got to finish up with some shopping. Uh, we both picked out a cocktail kit. Or two. <laughs> so be sure to check us out on patreon.com slash city of subdued podcast. For more content like this and others, So with that, uh, we hope you enjoy our season two finale of Bad Town. This is Annika in Columbia and Maria in Happy Valley. 
and welcome to the second season of the City of Subdued podcast. Bad Town. All right, so here we are at the season two finale. A special thank you to our listeners and a special thank you to Marissa, Colby, and Ren for all of their work this season. Yes, this has been a really great experience and we sure did learn a lot. Yeah, but we aren't totally over with Bad Town yet. That's right. In about two weeks after the holidays, we have a bonus episode coming your way, but we need your questions, listeners. Yes. So your questions about Bad Town and Bellingham history, send it to us through our social media or through our website at citysubduedpodcast.com. And there's a contact page on there as well. Yeah. We have an email address. Yes. (laughs) And then uh, we will ask the Good Time Girls your questions. Um, You can also send questions for Annika and I to answer about ourselves, if you're curious. (laughs) So, Annika, what are we learning about this week? Uh, This week we are learning about some recent Bad Town stories. This episode is going to bring us to the 80s, learning about some local lore surrounding our very own serial killer bar, and the boiler body cold case. Ooh, that's coming right up on this week's episode of Bedtown. And welcome to Bad Town, where we discuss the darkest and the baddest parts of Bellingham and Whatcom County history. We are joined today, as always, by our season two co-host, Colby Labrie. Hey, everybody. And Ren Urbekite. Hey. From the Good Time Girls. So uh, what what are you tell what story are you telling me today? Well, this week's episode title we've decided to call I Don't Give a Damn About My Bad Reputation. <laughs> Emphasis on the bad. <laughs> um, this week we're gonna we're gonna talk about um Bellingham and the and the Pacific Northwest re- bad reputation for kind of attracting these um serial killers and mysterious deaths. <laughs> but we're gonna go we got some stories from the seventies and eighties um about serial killers and unsolved crimes this time. So they're gonna be a little more a little more vintage here. I do before we get going though, I wanna um just give a quick trigger warning. Um, the, some of these stories are about rape and murder. And though they are a part of our history here in the Pacific Northwest, we don't want to make light or come off as insensitive to these more recent tragedies, which some of our listeners may remember or have ties to here. So we know that true crime walks a fine line, and we want to make very clear that our thoughts are with the victims of these horrific crimes born of some seriously toxic masculinity. That said, <laughs> as we go forward, I know we've we've really um on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the 1800s and the early 1900s, pre-1950s. We are blasting off into the 80s. <laughs> yeah, this is like during my lifetime, guys. It makes me feel a little old. 
but (laughs) (laughs) here we are. Okay. (laughs) So first of all, the first story we want to talk about, yeah, vintage. I'm vintage now. First, (laughs) the first story we want to talk about is this sort of urban legend um, that surrounds the Waterfront Tavern in that it's known as Bellingham's quote unquote serial killer bar. And then we're going to finish with a weird unsolved crime from 1987 involving a body found in a boiler at the former Georgia Pacific um, plant, which is the site of our new waterfront redevelopment area. So all of this is happening in, in and around Whatcom Creek and Old Town. And I really feel like these stories, they just really fit in with the whole bad town theme in my mind because they bring it back around to this dirty old mill town, um, (laughs) which is what sort of set the stage for my viewing of Bellingham as bad town, as described in episode one. Um, They invoke the dirty, dingy industrial area when the waterfront was really dominated by Georgia Pacific and divey taverns in the downtown vicinity, you know, that served all the blue collar workers. So speaking of dingy and waterfront, what can you tell me about the waterfront tavern, which I love, by the way? (laughs) I know. It's got a great view and good fish and chips. Um, So just going to say that. It's one of my favorite spots to go for like a luncheon meeting. It's right on Whatcom Creek. So it is the last building of its sort on pilings on the creek. Uh, So I don't think, you know, if it goes up in flames, you wouldn't be able to build something there again. Um, So it's kind of grandfathered in there, where at one point, that whole stretch was a big, long viaduct all on pilings. And there's a lot more buildings built in the same way. So the Waterfront Tavern really got started after Prohibition ended in the late 30s and early 1940s. And it was originally around the corner on facing Central Avenue, kind of behind or near where Jalapenos is. And then it moved in 1946 to its current location under owners Ed and Jake Camerzel. And that had formerly been the Marine Tavern. So just moved into a new new digs in what was already a tavern. But that's all old history. So for a while now, there's been this rumor or local lore around the Waterfront Tavern. And that it's sort of like known worldwide as Bellingham's quote unquote serial killer bar, having been patronized by some of the area's most notorious murderers. So people will like speculate, you know, what what is it about this particular bar or about Bellingham that seems to draw so many of these types? You know, is it proximity to the border? Is it the nearby lighthouse mission? Is it just the divey nature of the bar? Yeah. What what was it? What what are your thoughts? What do you think, Ren? <laughs> uh, but what, what from what we can gather, the the whole story about the bar really kind of started in 2002 after the DC sniper killings um, were in the news, and um, John Muhammad, aka the DC sniper, had a pretty major presence in Bellingham, and he actually stayed at the mission, and he definitely 100% did patronize the tavern. So apparently. You know, once this kind of came to light, folks at the tavern started talking and realized another convicted serial killer, um, James Allen Kinney, had also been cited drinking in the tavern just a few years prior. And probably at this point, you know, rumors and and uh, beers are flying and <laughs> it kind of becomes this um, speculation of stories about what other um, well-known 
serial killers might have been here, like um, Kenneth Bianchi, the Hillside Strangler who was in the area, Ted Bundy, who grew up in the Seattle area and committed his first murder in Washington State. So there was a lot of speculation that those guys could have been here as well. And the story spread. And in October of 2002, the New York Times interviewed the owner, Lynn Farmer, who owns the waterfront, and uh, wrote a big article on the topic. Yeah, I love the subtitle for the article was $2 Bud and a Bundy for Every Barstool. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I know. Okay, New York Times. Um, <laughs> and the article, the claim was that the four that we mentioned, these killers had patronized the bar. And yeah, we believe Muhammad and Kinney did do so. But Bianchi and Bundy, not so certain, uh, got thrown in. They more likely, you know, just kind of got thrown in the mix. And it was this, oh, like we're getting publicity around this. So let's let's just kind of spice it up a little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it kind of backfired and became something the owners uh, regretted because it actually brought some negative publicity as well. So although they publicly admitted it was kind of a stunt that got out of hand, the story persists. <laughs> yeah, people still ask me about it on tours and stuff. So it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so what you're telling me then is that Kenneth Bianchi and Ted Bundy did not frequent the waterfront. That's just like a, just pretty much a stunt. Yeah, Ted Bundy, um, we don't think he ever patronized the tavern or was really in the area. Many of his killing, his early killings did take place in Washington, but um, none were this far north as far as we know. But um, if you need a refresher on that guy, <laughs> Bundy was that that good looking fellow who um, would fake having a broken arm to lure women into his VW. And he was executed in, um, by the electric chair in 1989. Florida? Yeah, in Florida. He got around. And then Kenneth Bianchi, the Hillside Strangler, um, has a really solid Bellingham connection and presence for certain. He was arrested here after the rape and murder of two U, um, Western students um, right here in Bellingham. Um, and he worked as a security guard at Fred Myers, and he was definitely a regular patron um, of the tavern. Uh, or right, sorry, scratch that. A regular patron of the tavern claims to have seen him there. <laughs> so, and he stated, and the, the, this patron says he just looked weird. He had kinky hair, and his eyes looked like he was just staring at nowhere. Address that he might have been here. Bianchi is currently serving life without parole at Walla Walla State Pen. Um, Has got a couple of nicknames for Walla Walla, aka the Walls, or my favorite, Concrete Mama. I'm just gonna call it that from now on. Walla Walla is now called Concrete (laughs) Mama. (laughs) So Kenneth Bianchi then is a maybe, right? If you believe the one guy you know who drank at the waterfront, (laughs) who says he swears he saw him there. I always believe the one guy at the waterfront. <laughs> That's good life advice. Yeah. Uh, so uh, then tell me about who actually did drink at the waterfront. So it's James Kinney and the DC Sniper. Yeah. And like Kinney, Kinney's kind of just like an unknown guy. He doesn't have the same notoriety as the others. Hence, probably why they were brought in to spice up the story. But um, he basically, him in a nutshell, is he was a mentally ill Vietnam vet who um, murdered a woman who was found on the Mount Baker Highway. 
in the early 2000s and was believed to have murdered at least two others. I'm not sure Mm. where at, but he is also serving life without parole at the walls or concrete mama. Concrete mama. Um, yeah, and the DC sniper, John Muhammad, who we mentioned, he was definitely at the tavern. He stayed at the mission. He spent a good deal of time in Bellingham. And John and his 17-year-old partner in crime, Lee Boyd Malvo, they came here with John's children, whom he was keeping from his ex-wife after having kidnapped them. Um, and af- after his ex found and got custody of the children, Muhammad started training and brainwashing Malvo here in Bellingham to start a revolution. Um, They would often go to shooting ranges between here and Tacoma, and they planned their first shooting in Bellingham. And luckily, by some stroke of good luck, um, the target turned around and went back into the building before Malvo could pull the trigger. So, yeah, the pair um, didn't start their shooting spree, actually, until they got to Maryland, where John's ex-wife was living with the children. And um, at that point, 10 people, as you guys might remember, 10 people were killed and three critically injured. But the purpose of these murders was actually to make them look random so that he could kill his ex-wife and make it look like a random shooting, too, which is just, to me, one of the most startling domestic abuse cases our country has ever seen. Luckily, <laughs> Bellingham didn't suffer any deaths from these two, but the planning um, almost certainly took place over many lonely beers at the waterfront. Um, and I just want to know, I'm super fascinated by this case. I've been listening to it on a podcast. If you guys are interested in more information, the podcast is called You're Wrong About and they have a four-part series on the DC Sniper. So definitely Good Time Girls recommend. Cool. Okay, so back to Badtown again. Is the Pacific Northwest prone to these kind of weird mishaps? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, people who are like, you know, this the Pacific Northwest, it, sort of a breeding ga- ground for serial killers and creepy crimes, you know, just because it's like dark and rainy and the sun never shines and all that kind of a thing. Like everyone's got seasonal depression. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I read today too, I think some, some experts, you know, speculate that it's like, you know, there's lots of wooded areas and place to hide bodies or, you know, dispose of bodies like the woods and the ocean and everything. We don't have the most serial killers. I think a lot of people think we, we do, but uh, we actually don't. But I think per, they said, for the population that we have, it's definitely striking that we have as many. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I, I know like Norway's got this reputation like worldwide as being this dark, sunless place filled with like satanic metal bands and <laughs> weird stuff i feel like the pacific northwest is like the norway of the united states (laughs) yeah and i mean there there are some weird stories from out here though like wasn't it somewhere in the northern puget sound where like the foot was found oh yeah the feet wash up all the time it's in like canada vancouver yeah victoria somewhere in there there's like multiple feet it's always like the left one or something it's really weird God, that's yeah, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of unsolved weird crimes, <laughs> we've had the one next story I wanted to tell was about the boiler or the body that was found in a boiler. That's still an unsolved mystery. I mean, like a foot washes up, okay, but how does this one like it's a body, it's a person? Who is this person? And there's so many questions about this. 
that just boggle my mind that it's just went unsolved and could happen without anyone noticing anything. Yeah. So just a skip and a jump over from the Waterfront Tavern, it was the Georgia Pacific pulp and paper mills that operated in Bellingham between 1963 and about 2001. So it was the last of like many, many mills that dominated Bellingham's waterfront for decades and employed lots of people. Um, my grandparents met at the toilet paper factory, but this creepy, creepy crime happens here. So Ren, do you want to like get into the details? Yeah. So it's 1987 and it's about 521 in the morning when a GP employee checked on an alarm going off for um, the number nine boiler at the steam plant. Um, so the steam plant is basically like a four-story brick building. It's got 10 boilers, and they're used to preheat steam to power things in the mill. Um, so this alarm is going off for the boiler, number nine, that was only used occasionally. Um, and the alarm detected changes in temperature, usually meaning like a steam pipe was leaking or something. Um, and so the employee climbed to the top of the stack where a four-foot-wide lid... Um, was usually left open. And he opened the stack and peered inside. And what he saw were the remains of a partially skeletalized, extensively carbonized um, human remain. Um, and it was on the pipes about 17 feet down in the stack. So articles of clothing under the body suggested that the person um, had tried to take off their clothing and use them to seek relief um, or climb their way out. The victim had tried to climb to safety, apparently, because he still or they still had the socks on their hands. No, that's just brutal. Yeah, that's the most chilling detail, I think. So, yeah, they don't know how long the body was in there. They think um, could be several days, could be several weeks. But inside this boiler, the temperature was usually about 95 degrees. Um, and that's when it's non-operational. But when it's fired up, it goes up to 370 degrees in there. So it had been fired um, intermittently in the months before they discovered the body. Um, and the most recent firing before they discovered it was just a few days before. And it was fired for about 34 hours. Ugh. So how did this person end up in the boiler? That is the big question. It's This is so weird to me because the stack is not an easy place to find or get to. It's kind of like you, you might really need to know how to get to it. There were only two ways to get in, and one of them was a steel hatch near the bottom. But that was quickly ruled out because it was completely sealed shut and the bolts were rusty. It took them like two hours to open it during the investigation. So the conclusion was then that the person had either you know jumped or fell or been thrown in from the top of the stack. Um, but to get there to where you could access the top, you would have to climb three flights of metal stairs, or you'd have to ride on a conveyor belt inside the plant to get to this roof. And then from there, you would have to either use a ladder from a catwalk by the base of the stack or climb up a bunch of pipes or possibly jump from a nearby roof, all of which just sounds like super crazy. And like also nobody noticed that. I mean, 
they would be making their way through the grounds, which were not small. There were not security fences and there were not cameras at the time, but there were guards patrolling. It wasn't impossible to sneak in, but it also wasn't like super easy. So yeah. who knows? Like what? How? I mean, assuming if someone like forced someone up there, that would have been even more noticeable. Yeah. I don't know. Were there any clues about who it was? No one was reported missing. Um, no workers were missing and no one saw anything. So um, the body was very charred, but there was some dental work, but it didn't match any of the records in the missing person files. They believed that the man was of slight stature, so maybe around 5'8 or 5'9, about 130 to 155 pounds. They think maybe younger, like 25 to 35 the body did have numerous bone fractures, both thighs um, and other leg bones, two bones in the right arm. Could be, and they don't know, but it could have been from a fall um, into the stack or from the heat stress, you know, just from it being fired. It's hard to know. The clues we have, we know he was wearing a lightweight shirt and jeans, um, a denim jacket, and some size 8 sneakers. It's a very 80s outfit. <laughs> He got the, the jean jacket on. Oh, and he had apparently tried to remove his pants and um, his jacket was under his body and his shirt was wrapped around his leg. Um, and then, of course, we mentioned his socks were on his hands. He had no wallet. He had no keys. And nothing else was found except a charred, partially readable piece of a Continental Airline ticket for a baggage claim. Not a lot. There were two um, sets of forensic drawings, um, and they were released at different times, but um, nothing came of nothing came of them. Yeah, that airline ticket is just like maddening. Apparently, it was just like this fragment, you know, not enough to match it to any anything. It's just. Uh, <laughs> and then this weird twist in the case came. So an employee of Western's steam plant. So Western is the, uh, another place in town that has a big steam plant. And this employee of the plant came forward to the police after the case kind of got publicized and said this strange woman had come in to Western's steam plant in late summer of 87 and asked him if she could see the inside of a boiler. And he was like, oh, I guess so. And he opened one up that wasn't being fired. And she apparently climbed in and out and like sat on the pipes several times. She did this just weirdly. And <laughs> then, then he was like, yeah, it was weird. And she left. <laughs> and I don't know. And there, he was just like, don't know if that helps at all. And they were like, well, not really, because they really maintained the victim was male based on the pelvis and lack of reproductive organs. So that didn't lead anywhere either, but was extremely weird. Um, <laughs> the case went cold in 1993. They reopened it in 99 and ended up closing it again in 2004, at which time the skeletal remains were cremated and buried in an undisclosed location. The steam plant was demolished in 2011. So pretty much any anything to do with the murder is gone now, and it still remains unsolved, maddeningly. So random question, when it was reopened in 1999, was there any new like developments from that that we know of? Nope. <laughs> Not at all. I think that was at the time when they did another um, round of forensic drawings. 
you know, which were like slightly different from the earlier ones. I think they looked again at missing person, you know, updated missing persons files. But again, nothing, just nothing came up. So are there any major theories about this case? Um, well, there's a couple. So, I mean, we got like a suicide maybe, um, and then they changed their mind. Um, it's kind of a strange and intricate sort of plan. Um, but there were, again, no notes, no missing persons. Um, maybe a crime. There was a lack of ID and there was an attempt to get out. It was a good place to hide somebody if you wanted them dead. But then again, like Colby mentioned, I don't know how, you know, you would force somebody up, you know, up the catwalks or what to ride on the conveyor belt <laughs> without them figuring out what you were doing. Yeah. So I don't maybe urban exploring gone wrong where, you know, they were just kind of curious and thought, oh, this is warm and I can definitely climb back out and just couldn't. So, yeah, there's a detective, Al Jensen, who worked on the case prior to his retirement um, in 2015. And he said the case just like haunted him. It really got to him. He said, quote, nothing seemed to fit. Nothing about this ever made sense. So, I mean, we have theories, <laughs> but no way to prove them. It is a real mystery. It's so bizarre. It's just like how, how and why there's just no answers to any of it. And again, like, you know, that's like a person who, you know, somebody's baby. <laughs> how did how'd that person end up there without anyone noticing or missing them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And somebody out there has like no closure. Yeah. Their loved one. Yeah. There's a in-depth, more in-depth article in the December 2017 edition of the Journal of the Whatcom County Historical Society by former former Herald writer Dean Kahn. Um, there are also a couple of interesting documentary sort of TV episodes. I think there's one that is um, English on YouTube. You can probably find those with the Google. We will also post some of these resources on our blog to accompany this. But yeah, <laughs> I hope um, all these creepy stories kind of give people some new perspective on, you know, the history of our little town, um, because so much of it is on the dark side. And I, I, I just wanted to also give a little plug to Annie Dillard's book, The Living, which I revisited recently. It's set in the early Euro-American settlement period on Bellingham Bay, and it's it's a dark read. It should really be called The Dead, honestly, <laughs> not The Living. <laughs> but it's it's really well written, and I feel like it conveys this sometimes like just oppressively dark feeling of life in the Pacific Northwest. Also, recently, I just watched this movie that I just have to plug to you guys, but it's called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and it was from 2014, so it's fairly recent. But this is an American horror Iranian vampire spaghetti western is how it's described, <laughs> directed by Anna Lily Amirpour. It's set it, the setting of it is this ghost town called Bad City, and it's all very industrial and arty in this very 1980s 90s sort of way that made me think of Bad Town. 
bad city. Yeah. So, yeah, like the city of subdued excitement here, you know, like we've come a long way and this town is really attempted to clean itself up a little bit um, and sweep some of the old industrial grime under the rugs or under the public parks. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> really is where they are. But yeah, we I feel like we still have a lot of work to do, um, particularly around racial justice and reparations there. But I feel like the dark parts of our history shouldn't just be kept hidden away like a skeleton in a closet <laughs> or a smokestack. <laughs> Sorry. Is it too soon? That's a bad I was joke. about to say, or a boiler, but <laughs> boiler, smoke. It's a boiler. You're right. Technically, it's a boiler. Body in a boiler. Well, this concludes season two of the City of Subdued podcast bad town and i must say this has been an amazing journey it has good times in bad town <laughs> we are so <laughs> glad <laughs> that you enjoyed this um, wide variety of tales that we've been telling about the quote-unquote bad belling history that made up this series and i just want to say we love bellingham <laughs> warts and all so <laughs> to speak um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you hadn't noticed, we are intentionally using bad quotes in a subjective way here. Um, of course, some stories are just plain bad in a creepy and evil sort of way. Other stories are more complicated and border on what you might call badass. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, there are little lessons in all of them um, and insights into this place that we live and the people who lived here and all the events that shaped our town in different ways. We have so enjoyed sharing these 13 episodes with you. At The Good Time Girls, we believe in telling stories of our history here in the Pacific Northwest. Most importantly, the types of stories that you won't find in most history books, mm -hmm. the ones about how people really lived and what life might have felt like for them, people of all ethnicities and social status, and in this case, Bellingham's baddest crooks, and most prolific baddies. Uh, we hope you've been able to see our history in a new way. And that's what we love most about our jobs. Yeah. And thank you all so much for taking us into Bad Town. This was an amazing series. And I really can't thank you enough for the time that you all put into this. So um, where can we find you now? Yeah, um, starting in the new year here, we will be continuing with um, virtual programming, which we've been newly kind of doing, um, both on our own and through Bellingham Parks and Recreation. We've been working with them to offer some uh, virtual offerings in their uh, leisure guide, which is now called the Winter Playbook. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll be doing um, our cemetery virtual tour called Buried Belling History on two dates, January 20th and February 10th. And the mysterious markers of Fairhaven will be on February 3rd and March 3rd. And all of those will be at 6 p.m. And you can register through Parks, the Winter Playbook. And we will have information and links on our website and Facebook as well. And I think those events are all $10 per log on. Also, we are going to be offering um, our own sort of bread and butter tours, the Sin and Gin tours and our Gore and Lore tours. We are going to be doing those both live at, in person with our continuing with small private tours until we can do large public tours safely mm -hmm. again. Um, but we are also going to have some virtual options for those beginning in January. So that's exciting. We're working on that 
now, we are contracted actually for next season, what would normally be our tour season with the city of Bellingham to offer free general tours to the public in both downtown and Fairhaven. But it remains to be seen at this point what that will look like. So we kind of have plans A, B, and C (laughs) percolating. And we'll just have to see what happens and how the pandemic plays out in the winter and spring. But something will certainly be happening with that in 2021, starting probably in June. Well, 2020 has been a wild year. So here's to hoping that uh, we can see more of you in 2021. Well, thank you again, Colby and Ren, for chatting with me today and sharing these fascinating stories. So long for now. And we will talk to you in a few weeks with our questions from our listeners. All right, our um, final local treasure of 2020 is coming right up. In this segment, we do a roundtable sharing of something we ate, drank, or otherwise consumed recently that fills us with local pride. What's your pick this week, Annika? My local treasure this week is the Swim Club Miracle Pop-Up Cocktail Kits. I got the Christmapolitan, which was fantastic. I really like herby cocktails, and this one had uh, some rosemary in it. Um, All of their kits came in an awesome gift box with crackers and a walnut cheese ball, which was delicious, and um, a boozy Santa Christmas postcard. Cute. I have to give a shout out this week to Temple Bar for their incredible hot buttered rum. It's so warm, sweet, and delicious. It's pretty much a hug in a glass. Uh, Brandon and I also got some breakfast takeout from Home Skillet. The pulled pork tater tot hash continues to be the greatest breakfast dish in the city, and their house-made hot sauces are going to make wonderful holiday gifts. All right, I think that about wraps things up. We want to wish our fantastic listeners a very Merry Christmas. And a happy holiday season. We hope you stay safe this holiday season and hope that you find joy in whatever way you can. Thank you again, listeners, for coming along with us to season two, and be sure to keep an ear out for our bonus episode coming your way. And we'll have season three out as soon as we figure out what that's going to look like. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, we thank you again for coming along on this bad town journey with us. Uh, Maria and I look forward to bringing you more content, but I think for now, we're just going to take some time to recharge. So until next time, Bellingham, or should I say bad town, so long. So long.